I hit rock bottom as a business owner. And then I just said, you know what? Maybe I should start reading some books on leadership and management because obviously I'm not doing a good job in that area. And I just took my ego out of it. And I realized, you know what? This was a blessing. It was a silver lining for me to learn this lesson. And like you said, it was definitely a big, big strike to my ego and a big struggle for me in that moment. But I think those are the moments when you look within, right? You could blame it on everyone else, which a lot of people do. But what good was that going to do? So the big question is this. How do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership, and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner. Let me first say how grateful I am for all of you to spend as much time as you do listening to the podcast and the positive feedback that we get. I don't usually begin many of the podcasts with this, but would you do me a favor? Would you go to, if you listen to our podcast, which many of you do on Apple and leave us a review, that would be great. It helps us to spread the word and allow more people to learn from great leaders, such as the leader we have on today, Mr. Jay Atkins. Jay is a serial entrepreneur, incredibly successful insurance agency owner himself, real estate investor. I've been so blessed to have so many incredible guests on the podcast over the past year and a half. I think at the time of this recording, we're around 60 or 65 podcasts that we've completed. And I have to say, this was one of my very favorite podcasts that I've done. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for some time, we kind of follow always a standard script. We begin and say background and origin story, because I think it's interesting to kind of find out a little bit about where people are and then go into some key questions, maybe four or five overarching questions that I'll have. And then we get into E9 rapid fire. What this podcast takes, as you'll see, as we get started, it really takes a different turn from the very beginning. Jay and I, as we started to talk, we ended up discussing about kind of where he was located and where his different offices are. And it just ended up turning into a fascinating discussion that led into culture. And before you know it, we were 45 minutes into really a back and forth conversation. This was other than a checking call I had with Jay. This is the first time that I'd really had an opportunity to get to talk to him. Fascinating conversation with him. I decided to make this a two-part conversation because I felt like there was just so much good in this. Throughout both of these episodes, we'll drop this episode this week and the next week we'll follow up with episode two, we touch on a lot of things that are very similar that we've touched on in other podcasts, but his way of thinking about it just really resonated with me. We talk a lot about culture. We talk about mindset. We really talk about failure and how it can be a catalyst. And in his podcast that he has, they talk about the story behind the glory. And I just really love that mindset and that thought process. As we talk about in this episode, 
look, when you're going through a tough time and you're going through a struggle, you never in the moment say, boy, this is going to be great. I can't wait to tell this story four years from now. It is tough. It is difficult. And I've gone through so many difficult times personally and professionally over my career. But it truly is those times that you learn the most. We talk about Jay's morning routine. We really get down into the details. We talk about his goal planning system, his GPS, which is absolutely fantastic. You'll see the power of four that throughout this, you're going to want to take notes. And I think you're going to definitely want to favorite this podcast. If you're an Allstate agency owner, I know that you are familiar with Jay and Agency Sales Academy. And again, this was my first time to talk to him, but what an impressive man in person. I'm so grateful to have him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into episode one of the Jay Atkins podcast. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at Direct Clicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. Direct Clicks Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating, A-B split testing, and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail, all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the Direct Clicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, We have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. I was in North Carolina, which the premiums are really, really low. And I had a lot of customers. And then I figured out. And 2008 is really when everything was going awry. I figured out what was one of the best markets and the insurance space, what wasn't being affected by the housing market. And Texas was, there wasn't a bubble there. The houses were in line with where they should be. A lot of people during that time were moving from California to Texas. And another reason was taxes. There's no state tax in Texas. And then I moved to Florida because there's no state tax here in Florida as well. So, and then Florida is always where I wanted to live just because of the weather. I'm a water and golf guy. So I always wanted to live in Florida, but the premiums in Florida are even better than the ones in Texas. So I built my business. And if a lot of people are moving to Dallas and a lot of people are moving to Florida, that means opportunity for customers relocating. And a lot of people are moving out of the North. So that's why I picked those two destinations. I was planning on going to California, but then after I did my research, after going to Texas, I mean, 
California is just with the taxes that it's just not a good state to do business in. So I decided against that. But that was the reason I moved to Dallas first. So I could be, if I was in Texas, I was halfway in the middle. And that was really the strategy for a lot of businesses that moved all their corporate offices to Dallas because corporate real estate was cheap inexpensive. And 2008, everyone was trying to cut their expenses. So they were two and a half hours from the East Coast, two and a half hours from the West Coast. They were right in the middle and they didn't have to pay as much for real estate because you know East and West Coast are really expensive on the water. And Dallas is very inexpensive still today for commercial real estate. And I've got a beautiful office there for a third of what I pay in Florida because it's just insane here what they charge per square foot. So that was really my reason back in 2008 is when I started looking and I had to convince Allstate for a year to allow me because no one's ever done it before. So I had to convince them and then kind of threaten them a little bit and just say, maybe I'm too big for you guys. Maybe I'm thinking outside the box. If I'm too big, let me know so I can go spread my wings and do it somewhere else. And they were like, well, no, I mean, we're not saying that. They're like, how are you going to manage it logistically? And I'm like, oh, how do you manage 50 states from Chicago? I mean, I have technology. You guys don't even have technology now. Like I had a phone system, a heads up display. I had cameras. So I was like, if it matters for me to sit in a location and that's what my business is based on, then I'm dead. Like I'm never going to grow a business. So, but that was like a year and a half battle with them. And then another year and a half when I wanted to expand to Florida because the banks didn't want to finance me because the way Allstate pays, they pay all to one location banks with UCC filings don't like that because basically all the other debt I had, the people that were in front of them, they weren't comfortable loaning against a book that they were going to get paid last on. So I had to convince them to pay different. I'm the only guy in the company that gets paid different. So that was a lot of work, a lot of convincing, a lot of corporate meetings and convincing them that they can set up a different agent number. It's not logistically that difficult to do. Through time, I've created relationships in the company and I knew the head attorney. And so from a political standpoint, I leveraged some of those relationships and asked the right questions. And there wasn't anything in the contract saying that I couldn't do it. So there was nothing preventing me from it. And then having some smart conversations with the right people, they were like, you know, this guy's right. I mean, there's nothing preventing him from doing it. His performance is, you know, in the top 1% of the company, why would we not let him do this? Because they knew I could go independent. And I could do it even bigger. And if I went independent, I was going to take $30 million in premium with me. Who wouldn't do that? So that was the reason why I did it. And being in one market, if you become uncompetitive, you're dead for a couple of years, right? If the state is not doing well and you have rate increases and you're 10 or 15% higher than everybody else, you're on a hold and wait pattern till you become competitive again to grow. So I just thought, you know, hey, if one of my markets dies, I have employees, I have them licensed in all three states. I just take my efforts and point it at North Carolina, or I take my efforts and point it at Florida. So if I'm competitive at all, then I'll just hire more people and kill each of those markets. So that was my strategy too, was just to make sure that I wasn't locked into one state where I'm at the mercy of the company and what decisions they make and how profitable they are. That was the reason why I did that. And logistically, it's tough. It's difficult. You can definitely manage an agency local a lot better because you can be in them. But my philosophy was if I can get bigger without me being in the agency every single day, that's better. Even though is the agency going to run as well without me, the owner being there every day? Absolutely not. It never will. But that's small minded, right? If you think you have to be the reason that your business grows, you're going to be very limited in your growth. So, I mean, yeah, am I getting 30% less 
growth in my agencies because I'm not there every day pushing on people? Probably. But I'm 80% bigger. It's kind of like people with debt. People don't want to take on debt. But if you don't take on debt, you don't take risks, you don't grow. So I'm a big debt guy, especially when it comes to business, because I can turn someone else's money into millions where my money's not tied up. Same thing in real estate. That's what I do in real estate. I mean, I don't use any of my money ever. I use other people's money and I use hard money and I pay more for it. And then I flip the property and I never use my money. And now I have leverage with the bank, especially in multifamily. Like for every million you have in the bank, you have $10 million of loanable money. The bank will loan you $10 million for every million you have. So I keep my cash. It's invested in small investments, but it's not tied up where I can't use it as leverage with the bank. And I just use the bank's money. Every agency I've ever bought, I've never used my money. I've structured every deal where I've done seller financing, 33%. If you're not willing to seller finance 33% of the book, then you're not confident the book's going to pay you over 10 years. So I won't do the deal. I'll walk away. And with that, I have a clawback. You take one of my customers, I won't pay you 33%. So I mean, it's just using people's money. And I've never used a dime of my money in any deal I've ever done. Not one single penny. I love the entrepreneurial spirit, man. You and I are like brothers from another mother, man. Yeah, man. I've learned a lot from mentors and reading and just studying and the best people. Like when I find someone that's really smart, I'm going to be a leech, bro. I'm going to leech onto you and I'm going to ask you all kinds of questions that no one's ever asked you before. And and then I'm going to confirm your answers with somebody else. Make sure you ain't bullshitting me and, and telling me that something ain't true, you know? So like right now I'm doing flips and wholesaling and I went out and find the best guys. I had him on one of my podcasts actually last week. And this guy's doing 400 deals a month, flipping 400 houses a month. And he's got a warehouse with products and he's not even involved in any of it anymore. He's got a team of people that do it. He lives in his lake house, barely works four hours a week, but he built the system. He's like 40 years old, probably making anywhere between 30 and $50,000. So you can the math on that. I mean, he's just crushing it, crushing it. And right now the market's great. There's a lot of people wanting to sell their homes because they can't pay them or people that have rental properties are not getting paid. So like, let me get out of this because it's been six months that I've gotten payment because of COVID. And what he's doing is he's capitalizing on these people that are renting. He's taking the property, flipping it, fixing it, flipping it and making that $40,000 because the inventory is so low right now because everyone is trying to get out of condos. Everyone's trying to get out of the North because of this disease in New York, LA, everyone's moving out of those. California is just crazy what they're doing with taxes, man. I mean, it's bananas what's going on in that state right now. I mean, there's so many people fleeing California. Where are you at? Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. So you know Wiggins. Yeah, I've gotten to know Craig a lot more over the past year or so. When I first started my agency 10 years ago. But he, but he's you know, not an Auburn fan. I see you're an Auburn fan. I see the. No, he's not an Auburn guy. He's a big yeah. Alabama guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We poke each other with that. Yeah. Of course, I mean, hell, he's got the upper hand on me right now with oh, college yeah, yeah. football and even basketball. So I mean, I don't have much to say. My wife actually went to Alabama. So we're a divided household. Alabama has just been so dominant, man. It's a crazy, crazy thing. But you know what? That's all a coach, man. That's all recruiting. I mean, that's the mentality. That's the mindset that he runs that program. And people that are awesome are attracted to being a part of something like that. He's been able to build that, which is pretty cool to see in our lifetime that someone's been able to build something like he's built with young kids. You know, it is building of a culture, the way that he's done it, even though obviously as an Auburn fan, growing up really hating Alabama as a little boy and still despising them, you can still look at what Saban has done to build a program like that in a hyper-competitive college football 
time. I mean, it's not like it was in the 70s when, say, Bear Bryant was. College football is way more competitive now. I mean, you've got Clemson and Ohio State and all these teams that are just incredible. And one of the things I was looking back of his, this was probably about two months ago, I looked at his Wikipedia because I was curious about how old he was whenever he was at Michigan State and then when he was at LSU, Dolphins, and then, of course, Alabama. And his record at Michigan State was solid. You're an Ohio State fan. I think he was nine and three or something like that before he went to LSU. And then obviously he takes off, goes to LSU, is in the perfect place, wins a national championship. My point is, is that he got better and better and better and better along the way. And ultimately there was came in and you look at his record at Alabama. It's unbelievable what he's been able to do. And he's done it. I think coach Tuberville, who is now Senator Tuberville here in Alabama, he came to my office about a year and a half ago when he was running for the Senate. And somehow we got to talking about football, which is hard to do whenever he was coach at Auburn for 10 years. And he said, you know, the thing that I respect Coach Saban for the most is that he has continued to win in spite of the turnover he's had on his staff. He said, if I had that kind of turnover when I was a coach, you would have never heard of me. I would have been gone. So for him to still continue to have that kind of turnover, coaches coming in and out, and he still stayed at a high level, he still recruited at a high level, is pretty remarkable and fascinating. It's all culture. It's all culture. He's just built the right culture. And a lot of his turnover is because he made great coaches too, and they got promoted out and got a lot of opportunities. And so once you have a system, that's any business, right? Once you have a good system and you have a good process inside of your business, it shouldn't really matter who the players are as long as they follow the system and there's accountability. And that's really what he's built his team or his business around. Because I look at football as a business. When I'm watching a game, I see a business happening, right? The timeouts, the way they manage the clock, the way they manage the plays, the way they look at the mistakes, the way that they correct, the way they go in at halftime, call a meeting and say, okay, we haven't done this well. I mean, Football is a business. If people would run their business, like, I mean, cause when you watch a football game, there's two things you watch as a spectator. You watch the clock and the score, right? In your head, the whole entire time, you're like, they're down two touchdowns, right? They got time to get two touchdowns. They can get back in this game. They score a touchdown. You're like, crap. Now we're down three touchdowns. What do we need to do? So you're even strategizing in your head as a spectator in the sport. And that's the same thing they're doing on the sidelines, right? When a touchdown is scored, boom, they immediately go into solution mode. It's like, okay, we got to get a stop. We've got to get down the field. We got to get in the red zone. Then we got to score. And it's just a strategy. And that's when I see it, it's like a war going on, right? You got a general here and a general here and you're figuring out how do we win this war? How do we back them up? So it's very interesting. But yeah, I mean, I think that's all culture and he's got the right culture. He sets the expectations for his coaches. He sets the expectations for his players. Everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to come to practice, how they're supposed to play, what their mindset needs to be when they enter the field, what they need to be doing when they're on the field. Like He just has all the pieces. And like you said, what I think what you said was really, really important is that most people don't know the story. Most people don't go to Wikipedia and see what his progress has been, right? They just see the glory right now. And they're just like, oh, I hate that guy. He's so successful. But if you knew what a story was, where he came from, he failed it in the Dolphins, right? I mean, that's why he went back to college football because it was a different culture there. You can't really do what you can do in college in the NFL, right? But that was a failure, which is cool, right? I mean, he turned that into a success and knowing where he was going to be able to succeed and exceed even success itself. So I think that's what's really important for people that are listening to this. 
like knowing where you're really great at and then being able to leverage that and build something on it. And because I think a lot of times people try to do things that they're not good at just because they think they can be good at it. And sometimes we're just better in other areas of our life. And that's what we need to like really invest and put our time in. It begs the question, I mean, what have you been able to do to utilize, whether it's from college football or books that you've read or whatever, to create the culture that you have in your offices, especially having them in different parts of the country? So what are the things that you really fundamentally believe in about building culture? Because culture has come up on this podcast almost every single time that we have a guest on, and especially a business owner. They talk about the importance of culture. And sometimes I really want to kind of dig in and say, okay, yeah, I agree with you, but what are the specific things that you've done intentionally to build the culture that you want to have? Well, let me first start by saying I had a crappy culture. I was a crappy leader when I first started my business. I ran my business like I imagine Hitler ran his military. I was not good. And I actually made an entire office quit on me at the same time. I came back from a vacation. At Christmas time to Barcelona, bought everyone gifts. I thought everyone loved me, walked in the door and everyone walked into my office the first day back and handed me their keys and said, we don't want to do this anymore with you. And I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean? So I had to read lots of books. I had to look in the mirror and say, okay, if a whole team quits on you, it's you. And that was the first step is trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. And then in the process, what I was doing wrong. And I think what a lot of people do wrong when they build a culture is they try to treat everyone exactly the same. And they don't get to know their people. And they only know their people based on the results. They only know their people based on how much production they give them, how many calls they make, how many quotes they do. But they don't really know anything else besides that. They don't know what their goals are outside of work. They don't know what their family is like. They don't know what they like to do for fun. They don't know what they do when they go home. They don't have those conversations. And so one of the things that I did beginning, I said, you know, my office is like my home. When I walk in, I'm going to greet everyone and find out how their evening was, find out how their day was. I'm going to take five minutes of my time with each employee and I'm just going to talk to them about how their evening was, how their weekend was, get to know them every day and change the culture in my agency. Because when people come into my house, what's the first thing I do the first five minutes that they're there? We catch up, we connect, and then we go in, we have a glass of wine, or we start having a conversation. And the same thing when they leave. They don't just say, hey, I'm going to leave, and I stay in my living room, and they just walk out the door by themselves. When I leave, I'm going to say bye to everyone. I'm asking how their day was. What could you have done better today? What are you going to do tomorrow? Like, And what are you going to do tonight? What's on the agenda for tonight? So... I treat my office like a home. When I have guests, I'm going to do the same thing. That was the first thing. The second thing is, is I had to come up with core values that I was going to live and die by. I was going to hire by them, fire by them, evaluate by them. So when someone's not doing well, I'm going to go over those 10 core values in my agency and we're going to live or die by those core values. And then the other thing I came up with was an acronym because I love acronyms and we can talk about a couple of them. But one of my acronyms is FEET. And this is what I want to teach everyone in my organization from a culture standpoint to live by. And our feet take us everywhere. Without our feet, we can't get anywhere. We could be in a wheelchair, but it's going to be a lot more difficult to get there. We could be on crutches, but it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But if we have our feet, we're able to move, we get there faster. 
So the first one in feet, the F is fun. And this goes every aspect of life, right? In the agency, I want to have fun. In your home life, have fun. So everything you do, just try to have fun. And then the big one is the second one, E, and that's do everything with excellence. So when you're meeting with a customer, everything you do and every conversation that you have with them, the way you show up to work, the way you're dressed, the way you talk, the way you practice, the way you do everything, do it with excellence. And I think so many people do not do this. They don't live by this. That's why Alabama is so successful. Yeah. Everything they do, every play they run in practice is excellence. Not right. He's going to call them back, call them back. Right. So we role play like crazy. So I tell them to do and excellence is a habit. It's not something that you do in certain parts of your life. Excellence is something. So that's why I say, listen, if you're going to be a husband, be an excellent husband. If you're going to be a dad, be an excellent dad. If you're going to do anything, do it with excellence every single time. And you know if you're doing it excellent or not. Like you know if you're giving it a half job or a full job or you're going all in and giving it an excellent job. And then the second E in feet is evolution. And this one, the reason I did this is because I learned this from my father. My father did not evolve. He got stuck like Cuba did in the 80s. He doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't have a computer. He doesn't know what Google is. He has no idea what's going on in the world from a technology standpoint. And I just always said, like, no matter what, I'm going to evolve. And in the insurance space, I've been doing this 21 years. If you don't evolve, 21 years ago when I started doing this business, it's way different than it is today, right? And it's going to be different in 10 more years because we're going to have driverless cars. So maybe yep. insurance is not even going to be something that we write anymore on the auto front. Maybe it's the manufacturers that are going to be carrying the liability on these cars because they're driverless. I don't know. But I don't worry about it because I'm going to evolve. They're still homeowners. Motorcycles are never going to be driverless. Boats are never going to be driverless. Those types of things you have to drive and operate. But cars, maybe they do become driverless in 10 years. And so many people are worried about it. Or I have someone that comes from another agency that's been doing it a certain way for 10 years. And they tell me, well, this is how we did it over there. I don't care how you did it over there. We're going to evolve every single day, every single year. And when Allstate or whatever company you represent makes changes, most people sit around for nine months and complain about them. And then they'll start to change. Well, whenever there's a change within my company, I'm going to evolve immediately. I'm going to find a solution. I'm going to find a way to win. And evolution has to be a part of your life. Because in our time, Bradley, think about the evolution in the last 20 years. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago was 2001. Yeah. Think about 2001. That's when I opened my agency. I had a flip phone. I couldn't text. I was with Allstate. I had the intra, not the internet. So mm -hmm. an intranet for anybody young listening was an MS-DOS system that I could communicate with other agents only. What would I need that for? Why do I need to communicate with other agents that I'm competing against? That right. was the only access that I had to. And that was 20 years ago, right? Think 30 years ago, there wasn't even cell phones. In 1991, there wasn't even a cell phone. I got my first cell phone in... 1995. So think about that evolution. And if you don't evolve and think about what's coming, right, there's going to be a lot more technology coming. So you got to be ahead. And then the fourth one, T, is trust the process and trust the process of failure. That's what I want people to trust. Because when you first come into this business or you've been in the business 10 years and you come in and you train with me, you're going to fail. That's just part of the process. You cannot have success without failure. It's the polar opposite, right? Hot, cold. You can't have hot without having cold. You can't have high without having low. 
You can't have success without having failure. So when people are afraid to fail and they're afraid to make moves, I'm like, listen, it's a part of the process. What you need to do with that failure is get better. As long as you're getting better, I'm cool. As long as you're not making the same mistake over and over and over again, I'm okay. Make mistakes. Just take action, but trust the process and don't give up once you fail and be like, oh, it didn't work. Because you know this, being in the insurance space, you can try a marketing campaign for six months and it doesn't work really well. And all of a sudden, the seventh month, it starts to work, right? You can talk to a customer four times and not close the business. The fifth time you talk to them, you close the business because you were relentless and pursuing that customer. But most people in our space don't do that. Most people in our space talk to a customer one time, they say no, and then it goes in the trash and they never get followed up with again. I mean, if we had a process, which we do, if you have a process to follow up to it, because this is what I tell people in the insurance space, and this is how people should feel in any space in sales. You have a 100% close ratio. My agents have a 100% close rate because at some point you're going to be my customer. It might not be today. And I tell customers that. When I'm on the phone with them, I'm going to tell them and say, at some point, Today, you don't qualify. Today, I don't have the best rate, but I'm going to follow up with you until you become my customer because we're the best in the business and we're the best company in the business. I love so that. at some point, we're going to have you a customer of our agency. And I don't ask if I can follow up. I just tell them I'm going to. And then even if they say, no, you don't have to follow up with me again, I'm going to follow back up with them in 45 days before the renewal. They're not going to remember. I'm going to call and I'm going to say, hey, listen, Bradley, you told me to follow up with you at your next renewal. Just want to verify you still have those same vehicles. And then I'm going to send you over another quote. I don't ever ask, can I? I never ask a yes or no question. That's what I train my team to do is just call up and just say that because they're not going to remember that if they got a quote from us, maybe they got a quote from five other people. They're not going to remember if they told me not to or not to ever call them again. So at some point, you're going to be my customer. And that's what I think people in this space do a poor job of is having a process to follow up with all the no's. Because we have 85% of our people say no to us the first time we quote them. Right. So 15% of people say yes. That data is gold because now you're warm. Now you're going to be warmer the next time I talk to you because I have information on you. I'm going to call you up and be like, hey, you still got the Toyota Sienna? You still have the Land Rover? Okay, great. I'm going to send you off a quote for your Land Rover and your home again. Just take a look at that and see if we are now competitive because I have information. Either we weren't competitive because you had a ticket, an accident, a DWI, a DUI. Like, so now I have information and that information is gold, right? People pay for information. So if I've got that information already, like people are like, Oh, internet, these suck. That's man. I'm paying for people's data. Yeah. My close rates 2% on internet lead, but what's my close rate over 10 years on that internet lead? Exactly. Yeah. So it's so obvious to feel the confidence that you have in the belief of what you just said, that these people will eventually become your customer and that that is transferring over to your team. But I want to go back to something you said. What year were you in your agency whenever your entire team walked out on you? 2005. So you were four years into it? Four years into it. Yeah. And I just had purchased my first agency. So I had a scratch agency. It was actually 2006 because it was the January... 2006, right when I got back from vacation. So I bought the agency in June of 2005, six months, I ran everybody off. So there's somebody listening to this that has had that happen or had something else like that happen. And it has caused self-doubt, self-pity. They begin to kind of think, maybe I'm just not good at this. I'm not a good leader. I mean, you had to have had some of those thoughts yourself whenever that happened. Then you're saying that you turned Right. I mean, it's kind of what you talk about on your podcast, the story behind the glory. What made you flip that? And especially, I mean, if your dad maybe wasn't really instilling this type of resiliency in you, how did you become 
ultimately to take that situation, look inward, not have self-pity on yourself and say, you know what, I got to get better. I'm going to start reading some books because I'm just telling you, you have that situation, your entire team walks out on you. Very few people are going to get to the size that you are now who have used that as a catalyst in their business. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like when a drug addict hits rock bottom and you're like, okay, hmm, well, I've got a $6 million book of business that I need to manage and I'm the only one here. So I got to write business and I got to service all these customers. And, and the book that I have bought at the time was a high service book because the agent before had a relationship with a lot of clients that would just come in and chat. So it was yeah. a constant flow of people just coming in and wanting to pay their payment and have conversations. And I guess one of the things I've always been in touch with is my ego and understanding that ego either can be good or can be bad. A lot of people think ego is bad, but ego could be good if you understand it. And I talk to a lot of people about reading, why they should read, because a lot of people don't read. But when you read, you take your ego out of the equation because you're just having a conversation with the author. And if the author is speaking to you and you're open, you can say, you know what? He's talking to me. When that happened, I don't know. I just was like, okay, this is not about anybody else. Like it was a decision that six people made to walk out on me, right? I mean, how long was it happening? They were talking behind my back. This was a plan. I was on vacation. Like, so for me, it just was, I hit rock bottom as a business owner. I was 2005. I was 32, super young guy. I started my business when I was 27 and I was from the military and I worked at Waffle House. And so I was managing a different type of person. And then I just said, you know what? Maybe I should start reading some books on leadership and management because obviously I'm not doing a good job in that area. And I just took my ego out of it. And I realized, you know what? This was a blessing. It was a silver lining for me to learn this lesson. And like you said, it was definitely a big, big strike to my ego and a big struggle for me in that moment. But I think those are the moments when you look within, right? You could blame it on everyone else, which a lot of people do. But what good was that going to do? It wasn't going to do any good. It wasn't going to change my business. It wasn't going to change my situation. And so I just started reading. So I wouldn't say it was my father that instilled it in me. I just woke up when I was taking every single phone call and trying to manage. Because I had two agencies. The one agency I had, I built a relationship with those people. And they understood my why. And even though I probably didn't do a great job with them. I mean, one of the girls that was in that agency, her name's Amanda Strader. She's still with me. She's been with me for 19 years. And we've butted heads, but she's strong, right? She understands me, even though we didn't always agree on things. And she was in the other agency, running the agency and just said, hey, we're going to be good. You know what? We got to learn from this and we got to get better. And so that's what I did. I read probably like seven books. And every time I was reading, I was like, man, I suck. All these things they say not to do, I did. Like I violated every single rule in leadership, every single rule and mindset and getting the best out of people. And I think that's a long answer of what happened was just rock bottom. You're like, okay, I suck. And most people can't look within and say they suck. My wife and I are getting on a flight next week. We're flying to California. We're going to Napa for a little trip. And when you get on a plane, they go through their little safety announcements and they say, hey, in the loss of cabin pressure, make sure you put your oxygen mask on first before helping others or something to that right. extent. I think that's such an amazing metaphor for life and especially for leadership and business. 
And you've talked about it in, in our call last week. We were talking about just how books have changed our life, right? And what are the things that you do daily, weekly, that you believe have helped you to build towards the success? And I can even begin to define success because success for you, success for me, success for somebody else is going to be a little bit different. But what are some of the real things that you do daily, weekly, monthly that you feel is helping develop you to make you a better man, a better leader, a better person, a better husband, better father, those kind of things that you then ultimately can say, you know what, it's because of doing that and the unselfishness of me working on myself that has helped develop other people? That's a great question. I'm 47 now. So what I tell people is I want to always grow. And I live that, right? I don't like to tell people to do things and not live it. And in, in the last two and a half years, I've changed completely what you're talking about, that rhythm of my life and what I'm dedicated to doing every day and working on me. So every day, seven days a week, the beginning of the day, two and a half hours of it is just for me. And I wake up early for that because I have a three-year-old and I have an eight-week-old and I want to be in their life. One of my things is I'm going to be there every single morning my daughter wakes up. Like the first thing she's going to see is me. And when she goes to bed, the last thing she's going to see is me. And that's just what I want to give to her because it's that important. So I have to get up extra early in the morning to have those two and a half hours. And those two and a half hours every single day, seven days a week, give me over 60 hours of me time. I always just think it was funny for me time when people talk about me time and what that means. I was like, what is that me time? It's not that important. And my me time is I wake up at 530 and I for 20 minutes. I learned how to do transcendental meditation, TM, two and a half years ago. And my assistant, actually, it was on my calendar for three years. I wanted to look into it. But I was always like meditation, levitation, like all these things, kind of yeah, hokey right. thing, right? And I was like, is it going to really work? And she, what is this on your calendar? And I was like, I've been trying to get around that for three years. She's like, I'll just schedule it because it's like a four-day course. It's like two hours, four days in a row, and they teach you how to do this. Life-changing. I mean, it is absolutely life-changing. And so I learned how to do that. So I do that every morning when I wake up at 5.30. So it's I have something I look for. I don't like to get up early in the morning. I'm not an early riser at all. I like eight hours of sleep every single night because I think it's so crucial in your life and keeps you young and keeps your mind straight. And you're a lot better when you're awake. I know people say you sleep when you die, but I feel like when I'm awake, I'm the best version of me when I get seven to eight hours of sleep. So when I wake up and I have to meditate, I'm not waking up and thrusting into my day. I'm waking up and I'm just being mindful and I'm sitting in my chair and I'm meditating for 20 minutes. And then I go brew my coffee and I start to journal and my accountability journal. And I do that for about 10, 15 minutes. And really it's just, I ask myself like nine questions every single morning and a couple of them are gratitude questions and what I accomplished yesterday and how yesterday could have been better. I go through that process, which really sets me up for the next day of what I didn't do well yesterday. And then I read for an hour every single day. Now, for people listening, what I would say, I was not a reader. I hated to read, actually. It was not something that I enjoyed. I started a book club two and a half years ago with my staff. And it was at my kickoff meeting. And I said, anybody in here would be interested in doing a book club with me? Like, We'll read 15 pages a day, five days a week, 75 pages a week. And we'll meet on Wednesdays at lunchtime at one o'clock. And we'll just discuss our takeaways and our commitments in the book that we've learned and what we're going to commit to changing in our life. And 90% of my team raised their hand. Hmm. I was shocked. I was like, huh, okay. 
the reason I asked this question is because I needed accountability. I didn't have a system to read. I read when I was on an airplane sometimes. I read on my boat on the weekends sometimes. If I felt like it, I'd take my iPad, maybe read, maybe not read. And so I was like, well, this is going to be accountability because I'm going to read every single day because if I'm leading a book club, I have to read the content. I need to be able to talk about it, right? So it was the best thing that I ever did. And so now I read about 90 pages a day in that hour. And I love it. I'm reading a book about every two, two and a half days and just the amount of information that I'm able to consume. But it's my time, right? And the reason I do it in the order that I'm telling you that I do it in is because when you meditate or you can pray, whatever your thing is, whatever you want to do, just be with yourself and just think of positive things. Because when I wake up in the morning, like you, I'm really busy. I have multiple businesses. I have a little anxiety, right? I got a big day ahead of me. I got a lot to accomplish. And we wake up with that. So that meditation kind of just clears me. And then when I read with a clear mind, I'm able to digest the information. And then after that, I work out for an hour, five days a week. I don't work out seven days a week. The other two days, I'll go for a walk with my daughters or my dog or whatever, but to, you know, a nice little walk just to get some blood flowing. But I do that every single solitary day before anything else. I don't look at my phone. I don't look at Instagram. I don't look at social media. I don't touch my phone until 8.30 in the morning. But they're trying to get a hold of me. You're not going to get any kind of response from me until 8.30 in the morning. So that's my morning routine. And I tell you, if your listeners implement this in your life, it will change you forever. Because that time that you focus on you, what it helps you do is I'm a much better version of me for my wife, for my kids, for my employees, for my friends. Because I'm in a great place by 8.30 every single morning that I can be the best version of me. And then I'm accomplishing a lot more through the day because of the way I start that day. And so I want to tell you something and not to interrupt you, but something I was thought of today when in my reading that I'm going to implement. I read a lot of business books, mindset books, just about all I read. And I was reading today and I was like, you know, maybe I should implement a process at night with my wife to read relationship books with her, to her. Even if it's 15, 20 minutes, it's just a ritual that we do every single night before we go to sleep. Just read a book, discuss it, and go to sleep. Because one of the things that a friend of mine said to me last week is his wife said, maybe you should read some relationship books, read so many business books. Mm -hmm. And it kind of hit me. I was like, Bradley, you know how many relationship books I've ever read? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really important in my life is yeah. my relationship with my wife. So that's a new process that I'm going to implement before we go like to bed it. because it will strike up conversation. And what I like about it is it's someone else's words and not my guidance and not my <laughs> words on how or what we should be doing in the relationship. And I'm going to start with the five love languages because I've heard it's a really, really good book. And it I is think, a good book. But I think reading it along with my wife will be really good because one, I'll figure out what her love language is because I still don't think I know it. And two, it'll just open up conversation outside because we do some business together too. So what we talk about mostly is business and goals. And, and then the other thing that I would say is important and I'll wrap this up is, you know, I have a system that I created, a goal planning system and a GPA that goes along with that which is a goal-producing activity, I sit down every single quarter and every single month and I set those goals and I set the activity that I need to do to hit those goals. And then every Monday, I review it and see where I'm at and 
if it's family goals, I review it with my wife on Sundays and see where we're at, what we're going to do. If it's business goals, I'm reviewing it with my leaders. If it's just personal goals, I'm reviewing it for myself. But that's the other thing that I religiously do every single month. Because I think goals, most people never get what they want because they don't know what they want. I don't think they know specifically what they want. And I ask people this question all the time. If you had a magic wand, how much money would you like to make every single month to live the life of your dreams? And no one knows the answer. Every single person I ever asked that question to never knows the answer. They got to think about it. And what I say to them, if you got to think about it, you're never going to hit that number, right? You should wake up every day and say, you know what? If I can make 20 grand a month, if I can make 50 grand a month, if I can make 100 grand a month, whatever your number is, doesn't matter what your number is, but whatever people make is how they live their life. That's how they survive. Mm-hmm. But how you thrive is to know what that number is and then know what sacrifice you're willing to make to that number. Because most people are like, ah, grand a month, that's good. I'm happy. But what would be the number that would help you live the life of your dreams? And, you know, life of your dreams is different for you and I. Maybe it's just, I want a small boat and I want a lake house and I want this and I want that. And for me, maybe I want something different, but I can't judge what you want. You got to know what you want to get with. This could end up being the first five hour podcast we've ever had, because if I could dig into this, into these concepts and topics. And I love the businessy stuff, but I love so much about the routines of success, the mindset, the right way, the proper way of setting goals and planning for what you want to have happen in your life and being intentional. Okay. So I got to go back to a few things. So forgive us if I geek out on some of these things here, because I got to ask you some specifics. What journal are you using? I created my own journal. So on iPad, there's good notes. Yeah. I love good notes. Good notes is awesome. Yeah. So what I did is I typed out all my questions on good notes, right? And then I just duplicate it over and over and over and over and over again, a blank page, but I write a date on the top of it. But now I am creating, I just finished my book and this journal is a part of my book. And there's going to be a journal that you can get along with the book that will have 365 days in it where you can journal and it has the nine questions that I ask myself every single day so that you can keep track of. And it's an accountability journal. And I can go through some of the questions that are on the journal. Yeah, come on, man. Come on. So let me... um, me one of them. (laughs) <laughs> Hold on a second. Let me pull up my journal here because on the spot, I'm not good at memorizing. That's why you have to write everything down. So the first question I ask myself every single morning is, what did I do to get 1% better yesterday? And so a lot of these questions are about yesterday because I want you to shape what today is going to look like, right? So if you're evaluating an accountability for what you did yesterday, so it could be I read, it could be that I watched a video, an informational video, it could be that I went out and I practiced. It could be I role played. Whatever it is, what did I do intentionally yesterday to just get 1% better? Because my philosophy is if you get 1% better every single day, the compound effect is you're going to be great. And then the next question I ask is three people I am grateful for. And did Mm. you tell them? Mm. And then the next one is one thing that I'm grateful for. So not a person, but just one thing in my life that I'm grateful for. And then what are two goals I'm going to work on today and then put them on your calendar? So it could be an activity within the goal because goals are not going to be reached every single day. So if I have a 90-day goal, which I set all my goal in 90-day increments, and I do everything in fours, right? So there's four quarters in a year. There's four quarters in a month, which is four weeks every month. So I break all my activity down in those four weeks. There's four quarters in a day. So four quarters in a year month, week, and day. 
And the week is four days. So I'm going to break down all my activity Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday's overtime. So I'm going to do everything towards my goal in those four days. And then if I don't hit that goal Friday, I'm going to make sure I do everything I can to hit that goal. If I hit the goal on Thursday, I have an option. I can either take a half day off and spend with my family, or I can step on the throat of my goal and surpass it and make sure that I'm better than what I planned. And then every day has four quarters. And in an eight-hour day, 9 to 11, 11 to 1, 1 to 3, 3 to 5 is four quarters. So I'm going to break all my activity down into those quarters. And they're going to be calendar on my calendar every single day of exact what time I'm going to work on. If it's prospecting, if it's quoting, if it's this is the insurance space, right? But in my business, it could be working on my book. It could be doing a podcast. It could be training with this person, meeting with someone. So I'm going to plan my day out. I'm going to know exactly what I need to do to hit my goals. So, And then what goals did I hit yesterday? So I said, I'm going to work on these two goals. What goals did I actually hit yesterday? And then one thing that made me smile yesterday, because I think appreciating those things in life. So I'll give you an example. So my daughter was on, we have this little horse thing on our a swing set in the backyard. And my wife was swinging her. So there's a regular swing next to her. And so I just started swinging next to her. And my daughter's three. And she looked at me. She's like, good job, puppy. <sighs> you know, like... It just made me smile so much that she just thought, wow, my dad knows how to swing like by himself. That's so cool, you know? So, but I just like try to relive those moments of what made me smile yesterday because it makes you smile again, right? It, it sets your day off just thinking sure. about that moment and appreciating it. And then one new thing that I learned yesterday. So it could be in my reading, something that I learned through reading. It could be something I learned from my wife. It could be something I learned from a friend. It could be something I learned online. It could be something I learned about COVID or the vaccine or whatever. Just the thing that I learned yesterday intentionally that I went after. And then one thing that would have made yesterday even better. Hmm. So what's one thing that would have made yesterday better? Because what I want to focus on is today, right? I'm going to focus on what I can do today because that would have made yesterday better. It would make today better. And then what did I give yesterday? And that doesn't just need to be monetary. It can be time. It can be love. It can be helping somebody. It could be giving someone information. It could be mentoring somebody. It could be doing a video that impacted someone's life on Instagram or Facebook that I intentionally give yesterday. One of the things I had a guy come to my house and cuts my hair because I had a shoot for the back cover of the book. And he came to the house like, well, you know, how much is it? And it was like 80 bucks. And I gave him 180. Because through the conversation, he was just talking about how COVID has really impacted his business and he's struggling mm. and he's kind of stressed out. And I know that made his day, right? Because I listened and it was something that I could do because he went out of his way, drove here, made it super convenient for me that I didn't have to get in the car, spend an hour and a half. And an hour and a half is way more than a hundred bucks. That cost yeah. me a time of me windshield time and driving somewhere to get my hair cut. So just that. And when you ask yourself this question, it makes you more giving. And I'm going to tell you when you give, not just monetarily, but when you give of anything, of your time or your volunteering or whatever, it will empower you and make you appreciate. Because listen, I have a great business. I'm not struggling financially. To hear his story, that's like, man, you know, that sucks, man. God, your business was impacted 60%. Like I'm really appreciative and to be able to give to someone and put them in a situation, even though I mean, it's a hundred bucks, it's not like life changing, but just that feeling of appreciation. And when I go volunteer for battered women's society and you see like how they're living, what they've been through, like it makes you appreciate your life and yeah. you just want to continue to give. So that's the questions that I ask myself 
every single morning. And it takes me like 10, 15 minutes. I just write them down. But the great thing is, is you can go back. And what you'll see when you go back is transformation. Mm. And that's the cool thing about this. If you go, you do this 120 days, you're going to start to see transformation. But what's even cooler than that is your family starts to see transformation. They start to see a different person. I see my son's a reader now. He hated to read. My wife's a reader now. They're looking for ways to give. I'll ask my wife, what made you smile yesterday? And when I first asked her the question, she was like, why are you asking me that question? (laughs) I was like, I'm just interested. And then I would say, just think about it. What made you smile yesterday? And she would tell me, I'm like, look, you're smiling right now. And so last night we were sitting on the balcony like we do every night. And I asked her this question. I read this book, The One Thing. I don't know if you've ever read that or not. Oh, yeah. Gary Keller's book. Yeah. Yeah. The One Thing. So uh, one time I went upstairs and I said, what's one thing that I could do that would make our relationship better? Hmm, And, you know, a woman, she was like, hmm, I need to think about that. (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, don't put too much thought into it. It's like the first thing that comes to mind. Like I asked her that question like seven months ago and she still hasn't answered it. And last night she was like, that one time you asked me that question, why did you ask me that question? I said, well, I read this book and it was kind of really, it was based around like, what's the one thing you should focus on at a time? Or what's the one thing you could do to take your business yeah. to the next level? And I just thought about it in the relationship context, because I'm sure there's one thing that I could do that could help our relationship. She's like, oh, I was like, do you have an answer? She's like, no, I'm still working on it. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's a long time. So I must well, be doing everything yeah. great. It would be impossible to not have this recap really talk about the importance of culture. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, we were just having a conversation about college football, pretty casual conversation. And we were talking about Nick Saban. And but then that led into conversation about culture. And then he really spent some time detailing the times where he had his entire team walk out on him. And I think that that's incredibly vulnerable for somebody that's where he has gotten to be able to share some of those things and to look back on that and say, wow, you know what? That was the thing that helped me to get to where I was. And I realized that I needed to change who I was. I was the problem. The team was not the problem. And he used that to become a much more avid reader. And he shared that and how much it's transformed his life. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you may not want to have to pick up a book. I mean, some of you just maybe not feel like you have the time, but, you know, listening to this podcast or listening to audio, but doing something, anything that fits within your schedule and where you are in life to help develop yourself is maybe the most selfless thing that you can do. Put your oxygen mask on first. Special thanks as always to our friends, Direct Clicks. Visit them at directclicksinc.com. You know, with this podcast with Jay, he does go on to talk about the importance of referrals and having referral-based business. And without a question, we all know that referrals in any business is the best way to get business. But it is imperative that you have an online presence. So when people are out shopping, whenever they are looking for insurance, that they are able to find you. And one of the best ways to do that is through an SEO campaign and a pay-per-click campaign. And Direct Clicks is the best in the business. They are built by insurance agents for insurance agents. Very similar with Direct Clicks. It's important that you know that the company that you're working with, no matter what aspect of your business knows you and knows your business. And that's exactly what Clef Capital does. It is built for agents by agents. 
Club Capital has accounting and payroll and HR solutions, tax services, analytics. They track over $100 million in annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses. And they put that in a perspective that helps you to be able to understand those numbers, which then allows you to make better informed decisions. And so that allows you to take your back office and make it less of just a back office. And it can maybe be the strategic generator, maybe the catalyst that can help you to make better decisions so you can grow your leadership, grow your business, and grow and develop your team. Go to club.capital and book your complimentary no obligation demo. I'm already looking forward to next week's podcast with Mr. Jay Atkins. Until then, lead well.